You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Like me, you probably have memorized the CDC's list of symptoms of COVID-19. Shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, fever or chills, loss of smell, that's an odd one, coughing. Add to that list extreme anxiety, probably, obsessive hand-washing, and actually unemployment, I think, is a symptom of the coronavirus pandemic. I first realized this last year, in April of 2020, while I was quarantining in my basement apartment in Washington, D.C., and as I watched the national unemployment rate top out at 14.8%. That's the highest it's been in 72 years. I realized it as I worried about my mom's layoff from her job of 20-plus years in the hospitality industry, and as I worried about whether my teaching contract would be renewed at the University of Maryland, where I was a grad student at the time. 2020 witnessed not only a devastating loss of life, but a devastating loss of jobs, too. An unprecedented 22 million jobs were lost in just three months at the top of last year, according to the Congressional Research Service. As coronavirus swept the nation, so too did unemployment. Between fears of catching the virus and fears of losing one's job, 2020 was an historic year of anxiety for Americans. I say historic because 2020's dual crisis in health and unemployment is in many ways a realization of one of the oldest fears in the American psyche, a fear that's been with us since the 19th century. The fear of the disease of unemployment. As we will hear later on in this podcast, the concept of unemployment was first developed in America in the 19th century. In fact, the first time the word unemployment as a noun was printed in the U.S. was in 1887. So before the 1930s and the Great Depression, before the idea of unemployment insurance, and before there was a Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans in the 19th century knew from experience what it meant to lose work through no fault of their own, but they had very little understanding of unemployment as a systemic condition of economic life under capitalism. In the absence of this knowledge, which eventually gave rise to a newly developed discipline of economics and statistics, many Americans made sense of crises in unemployment by comparing them to the thing 
it seemed to have the most in common with contagious disease. There's a great phrase that was developed in the 1870s by this famous American economist, Carol D. Wright. And this phrase is to describe the medicalized fear of unemployment. Industrial hypochondria. On the one hand, this phrase is a bit of a misnomer because it implies that people's worries about unemployment are unwarranted or purely of their own imagination, which we know isn't true. But in the 19th century, Americans had some unusually intolerant ideas about people out of work. On the other hand, though, there's something spectacular about the phrase industrial hypochondria, because it recognizes the emotional nature of anxieties about job loss. Unemployment is scary. It can be a threat to one's livelihood, one's health, and in this country at least, one's health insurance. I think all of us today, especially people in the hospitality and restaurant industries, know the emotional anxiety that comes up when we're confronted with what seems like a super spreader event of unemployment. Were 19th century Americans right to compare unemployment to a contagious disease? That's what we're here to find out. I'm your host, Hilary Regline. I have my PhD in 19th century American literature from the University of Maryland College Park. I'm an expert on the cultural history of unemployment in 19th century America, and especially the literature about it. And in this short podcast, you, me, and a few of my colleagues are going to return to the 19th century to explore the surprising ways American economists, writers, and thinkers used metaphors of contagious disease to first conceptualize what it meant to be unemployed. To help me tell this story, I have with me some experts on the history of labor, literature, and medicine in the 19th century. Would y'all please introduce yourselves? My name is Richard White, and I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of History at Stanford University. I'm Sarah Altschuler. I am an Associate Professor of English at Northeastern University, where I direct the Health Humanities and Society uh, Minor and Initiative. Together, Richard, Sari, and I are going to revisit the fascinating ways 19th century thinkers and writers use the language of sickness and cure to explain the problem of mass job loss and to imagine solutions for it. If in the 19th century, unemployment was like a pandemic, what might we learn today about how best to remedy this ailment? As our workforce is piecing itself back together in this post-pandemic world, what lessons about unemployment from our history might help us in our present moment? When people think about unemployment in American history, they usually think about the 1930s. The Great Depression, the Hoovervilles, those somber black and white photographs of starving people lined up at soup kitchens in New York or Chicago. But most people don't know that before the 1930s, Americans had already experienced a different Great Depression 
one that started in 1873. And it lasted around a decade. Sometimes journalists in the 19th century referred to this Great Depression as the Long Depression. American historian Richard White writes a lot about that depression in the late 19th century in his recent book called The Republic for Which It Stands. There were actually two Great Depressions in the 19th century. The first one's the one you mentioned in the 1870s. The second one comes in um, 1893, and probably it's even worse than the 1870s depression. It doesn't last as long, but it's far deeper. But the critical thing in the 19th century and around unemployment was, unemployment was a new concept. To be unemployed, you had to work for wages. Before that, there had been downturns in the American economy, but most Americans either worked for themselves or if they were employed, it was only a phase in their lives. They didn't think of working for wages as something you're going to do for your entire life. By the 1870s, a significant portion of the American population is working for wages, and that had not happened before. And therefore, when they lose their jobs, they have no place to turn. If you're a farmer and you can't sell your crops, you can still at least raise food for yourself. Um, but if you're a worker and you have no access to land, you have no access to any other resources, then you're in trouble. And so what you begin to get in the 1870s is a series of phenomena that America hadn't seen before, one of which is going to be what we'd call homelessness, what they call tramps and vagrants who go all over the country looking for work. But of course, there is no work. And there's going to be people who are thrown back on their own resources, but they don't have those resources. Also, there is really no backup for people who don't have work. There's no unemployment insurance. There will be relief, but relief is looked down on and people are going to be disparaged for taking it. And it's very hard to get. So what you get in the 1870s is a social crisis, which Americans were utterly unprepared for, either conceptually or they're unprepared for it um, pragmatically. They don't know what to do about it. And it goes on for a very long time. And Americans realize they've entered a whole different world than what they've known before. Being in a whole different world of extreme volatility in the market, of radical booms and busts, of an ever-widening income gap, and cycles of severe unemployment in the late 19th century would have been disorienting especially for Americans, for whom opportunity and economic mobility are values still rooted in our culture today. In 1894, during that extreme depression Richard was talking about, one of the nation's leading economic thinkers, a man named Henry George, explained how destabilizing the fact of unemployment was to American culture. In America, George writes, men able to work and willing to work who cannot find work were not dreamed of. The surges in unemployment after the Panic of 1873, and then again in the Long Depression of the 1890s, forced people to start questioning and challenging the philosophy of self-reliance or the idea that ambition and ability alone is enough to secure a livelihood. Henry George was one of those influential thinkers who helped shape the modern conception of unemployment. To get a quick recap on this extremely important shift in American thought about work, effort, and unemployment, I turn to Richard White again. 
In his book, he argues that unemployment, quote, took on its modern meaning in the late 19th century. Richard, what makes the 19th century modern in terms of how Americans viewed unemployment? Um, the knowledge that people want work and cannot find it. What unemployment means is you're seeking work and that work is unavailable. And particularly for those who face it, they believe it's real um, and that it is real. And then many people who do have work because they're neighbors, because they're relatives, because people around them can't find work, they too begin to accept we're in a very different kind of economy. It's not as if, okay, I'm just, I can't sell these crops. I'm now going to plant crops and I'll just eat them. This will pass. We'll go on. There's nothing you can do. You depend on wage labor and there is nobody willing to hire you. And when you can't be hired, then in fact, um, you're going to be unemployed. And the argument against it will be, well, you can work. You just have to be willing to accept um, lower wages. But very often you can't work for any wage. And at a certain point, what is the sense of working for a wage that cannot support you, your family, or your children? And you also begin to realize that when these stints of unemployment are so regular and can be so prolonged, there's nothing you personally can do to, to um, sustain yourself. People do save. People do turn to relatives. People do take loans. But in a Great Depression, that's why the 1870s and 1890s show up. When it goes on so long, your personal resources are going to be absolutely exhausted. This idea was incredibly hard to swallow for the American people. And Richard later explained to me that the adoption of this new, more systemic interpretation of job loss as something that happens to you rather than because of you was very incremental, uneven, and is arguably still not fully accepted today. There'll be plenty of people who continue to believe down to the present day that anybody who wants work can find work. Americans put this sort of moral emphasis on things which really morality has very little to do with it. I mean, it's the 19th century governor of New York who was a Democrat who said it's the duty of the people to support the government. It's not the duty of the government to support the people. And that's the kind of attitude for the 19th century, which had to be eradicated to have any effective aid against unemployment. If the idea that getting a job might be out of your control is something that Americans resist still today, imagine how difficult it would have been to adopt this idea in the 1800s. That socialist thinker I mentioned before, Henry George, he and many other 19th century writers had an idea about how to make the social problem of unemployment more accessible and more urgent to the American people. That was by comparing it to an epidemic. That's actually the word he uses in his 1894 essay, How to Help the Unemployed. Henry George uses the metaphor of a contagious and fatal disease in this essay to describe unemployment as a public health crisis in need of large-scale organized intervention. Rejecting the old idea that unemployment was the result of laziness or thriftlessness, George says that unemployment is more like widespread, untimely death. What he does next with this idea is sure to strike a nerve with listeners today, because he says that unemployment isn't like any widespread fatal disease. It's like a respiratory disease. To paraphrase George, 
To say that unemployment is caused by the want of motivation on the part of the worker is like saying that sudden death is caused by want of breath. The unemployed want work like humans want breath. All of us understand now in this post-pandemic world what happens when millions of people who are able to breathe and willing to breathe cannot breathe. During a mass social crisis, whether that crisis is financial or medical, people become imaginative about how to explain their experience. For Henry George, that meant thinking of unemployment like a disease. People have long thought about the relationship between finance and health. That's Sari Altshuler, scholar of American literature and medical humanities. She's written a lot about how major health events like yellow fever or the cholera outbreak in early American history inspired major shifts in not just how American society lived, but how it thought. This is what's called an epistemic crisis. And I talked to Sari about how health crises, like a pandemic, affect many other aspects of society and inspire people to think in radically new ways about not just medicine and science, but the arts or about society. In my book, The Medical Imagination, I talk a bit about epistemic crises. I was really interested in moments where available ways of knowing fail in the face of some event or could be political, could be a health event, could be a discovery, but where those kinds of available ways of knowing fail and there's a kind of scramble for other ways of knowing. Just as the unemployment crises in the 1870s and the 1890s inspired Americans to shift their perspectives on what role individual will and ambition played in people's economic success, Sari explained to me that medical crises in the 19th century upended all sorts of commonly held beliefs as well, not just in the field of medicine, but in philosophy and society. When I asked her for an example of this taking place in American history, she brought up the cholera pandemic, which first came to the U.S. in the early 1830s, and by 1850, it's believed that over 100,000 Americans had died from it. Cholera was, just like COVID, an entirely new disease when it crossed into Europe, first in the 1830s and then in, into the United States. And people didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know what it was. I think a lot like COVID, you know, they thought that it might be familiar, but it actually turned out not to be familiar. They thought maybe it was just a worse case of diarrhea, but it actually was something quite different than that and really spectacularly fatal, especially even compared to something like COVID. And so I think that that's another instance where suddenly people are trying to have to reimagine things. One thing that happens is that actually the medical establishment that had been professionalizing and gaining more and more authority um, 
it fails pretty spectacularly and there are licensing laws that are repealed and there's a real flourishing of alternative practices in part because medicine could not do anything about cholera and so its insufficiencies were on display and people were really seeking other kinds of answers um, and if people are more interested in that i write about that in a chapter but also charles rosenberg is really the historian of cholera you know just to bring it to today's epidemic I think we're seeing a lot of the same things. You know, we don't like to think about ourselves as living in a moment that resembles the 19th century. But I do actually think in a lot of ways, the COVID pandemic better resembles cholera um, and the kind of antebellum ideas about medicine than it does uh, the heyday of faith in the medical establishment. We're really seeing a lot of skepticism about what medicine can do, about its potential nefariousness. These are uh, threads that were also present in the mid-19th century. I want to stop here for a second, because Sarah is already demonstrating how relevant this 19th century history is to our current moment. And in the last few minutes of this episode, I'm going to bring Sari and Richard back to talk about this very thing what our 19th century experiences of medical and economic crises can teach us about the coronavirus pandemic. But before we leave the 19th century, I want to highlight some things that are similar and some things that are pretty different about the social consequences of medical and economic crises in the 19th century, as Sari and Richard explained them to me. One thing that's pretty clear is that whether the country is facing the spread of unemployment or the spread of infectious disease, it's inevitable that people will come out the other side of crisis with new ideas about what it means to live well. Well-being is economic as much as it is medical. And this is something that our most recent pandemic has not taught us exactly, but reminded us of. Certainly people have long thought about financial instability as a cause of poor health. And that remains true today. And also remember in these economies, and again, we've seen the same things in the pandemic and the Great Recession, it hits people at the bottom the worst, because both they're the ones most likely to lose their job and they have the least resources to fall back on. So we've known for a long time then that people's economic and financial health are very much intertwined. But the ideas people have about how best to protect their well-being in times of crisis can be dramatically different depending on whether that crisis is one of health or work. What I learned from talking with Richard and Sari about the unemployment crisis and the pandemics in the 19th century, is that 19th century Americans were more willing to trust government and institutions during the years of high unemployment, but they became less willing to trust institutions during the cholera years. As Sari explained to us before, when the newly institutionalized field of professional medicine failed to curb the cholera pandemic in the mid-19th century, people lost faith in the medical establishment and began to put their trust elsewhere. There are licensing laws that are repealed and there's a real flourishing of alternative practices and people were really seeking other kinds of answers. 
the distrust that 19th century Americans held for institutions and for government during the cholera years is in some ways opposite of what they felt about unemployment when it reached record levels during the Panic of 1873. In fact, the first U.S. governmental effort to survey and thus define unemployment took place in 1878 in the state of Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Bureau of Labor and Statistics, which carried out this survey, was created in 1869, and it eventually became what we know today as the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics back in 1884. In crises of unemployment, then, Americans historically have looked to government and to institutions to help improve their well-being. So what happens when we experience simultaneous crises in unemployment and public health? Well, 2020 is what happens. I do think that we're living through an epistemic crisis. You can see this early in the pandemic, all these kinds of norms about how you produce scientific knowledge kind of fell by the wayside. All of a sudden, people were looking at different studies before they passed through peer review, right? And, th and that was making it to the newspaper. And I think there was a need to know, much like in these epistemic crises from the 19th century, a real need to know things as quickly as possible because they were matters of life and death. And it causes real shifts in the way that practice and systems work. As a 19th century literary historian, I often look to history to try to understand or make sense of the chaos of our present moment. And thinking about what happened to the economy last year, I wanted to know if there was some lesson that I could take away from the 19th century history of unemployment. It's not as if we haven't gone through something like this before. For me, the, the great lesson is just the, the necessity of government and the efficacy of government when it's willing to pour huge amounts of resources into this kind of problem. And these kinds of things, if the government doesn't step in, it spirals. The government can't stop very often these depressions because we've had them in the 30s. We've had them again in the Great Recession. We've had them often in American history, but this government certainly can mitigate their severity. They can stop the kind of mass suffering that takes place. Without that kind of government aid, without that kind of government intervention, things become worse and worse. It's hard to say what the long-term effects of the great pandemic are going to be, but the short-term effects could have been far worse if the government hadn't stepped in with massive aid. What Richard reminds us of here, I think, is really important. With the anti-vaxxing movement and the late insurrection on the U.S. Capitol earlier this year, people's trust and respect in government institutions is in crisis. But when my anxiety levels about this begin to rise, I take comfort in something that Sari told me at the end of our conversation about what the word crisis actually means. She says it means it's a turning point. We talk about financial panics and financial crises, and those are both medical words. The word crisis we don't think about today as being a medical word, but certainly in the 19th century, it was a medical word. And what crisis means is it's the point at which you either get better or you die. It's the turning point. 
I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this, <laughs> but I do think that crises are not necessarily all bad. And the, the kinds of results of epistemic crises and what happens within them is chaotic. I think one really positive effect of the pandemic has been, in, in terms of shifting ways of knowing, is that you have a president who suddenly is talking about systemic racism um, and white supremacy. And I don't think that that actually would have happened without the pandemic. And so pandemics and these kinds of epistemic crises have all kinds of unpredictable effects, and some of them are horrifying, and some of them can be unexpectedly generative. The truth is that what comes out of an epistemic crisis is often quite unexpected. Since I did these interviews with Sari Altshuler and Richard White, I've been thinking a lot about the potential that becomes clear when we think about a crisis in its 19th century medical meaning, a turning point. I'm unemployed right now. After finishing my PhD in May earlier this year, I graduated into a lot of potential, but not necessarily a lot of opportunity. This is uncharted territory for me, and for thousands of people right now navigating the post-pandemic job market. But if this conversation has shown me something new about unemployment today, it's that it's a very old problem. People do sort of push it out of their mind. Well, that's behind us now. And it's not behind us now. What keeps this going is short memory. Hopefully, this podcast won't let us forget. I'm your host, Hillary Regline, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.